Amazing grace. It's beautiful, isn't it? And it almost sounded like we meant it there for a second. Because I got to tell you something. I hate grace. I hate grace. And truth be told, I kind of think you hate it too. Now, now grace is when someone receives something good that they don't deserve, okay? So, so kids, that would be like your parents catch you disobeying them, and then they still take you out for ice cream afterwards. That's, that's grace, okay? And at first glance, I mean, it sounds pretty good, doesn't it? What's wrong with that? But let me say it again. We hate grace. Because just think about it. Grace is offensive. Because I want to believe that I earned the ice cream, right? That, that I deserve ice cream. But we humans, we're grace haters, aren't we? You don't believe me? Well, what about when you see grace in somebody else's life? Then how do you feel? So kids, like, what happens when your little sister, who you know disobeyed mom and dad, when she gets ice cream and you get none? How do you feel about grace then? Right? Maybe not quite so much. And we feel that. We see it in the context of the relationships with others when we feel that. I mean, how do you feel about grace in those moments? I think, honestly, we tolerate, at best, we tolerate grace for ourselves. But truthfully, we despise it when we see it in others. And as a result, I'm angry, bitter, self-righteous, judgmental, impatient, unforgiving, and fundamentally self-centered, just to name a few, right? All because I, I hate grace. And I, and I realize some of you, you know, still don't believe me, right? Amazing grace, come on, we, we love grace, we love it, we love it, but I, I just don't buy it. But before I began really studying Jonah this week, I might have ended up saying the same thing. Ah, oh, grace, it's just so great. But the more I looked at his story, the more I'm convinced we are grace haters, every one of us. So let me tell you a story. And the hard part is, for many of us, this is probably a story that we think we know already, right? It's like you can just kind of tune out and wait, wait till we get to the point sort of thing. Um, you know, Jonah, right? Jonah, something about a big fish, isn't it? Uh, you know, preaching the good news, people getting saved kind of thing. Uh, Jonah, he's the, he's the reluctant prophet who's wildly successful. But it's such a good story, isn't it? It's a happy story. All is right at the end of this story, isn't it? No. In fact, Jonah is the worst. He's the worst. And it frightens me just how much I'm like him. So it's 2,750 years ago, give or take, okay? And Jonah, is, is, he's one of God's people, right? Israel, he's, he's an Israelite, and, and there he is in Israel in a time of great flourishing for the people. They, they're safe, secure, they have what they need, and, and there's Jonah. And all of a sudden, God speaks to Jonah. And if you're at all like me, anytime this happens in the Bible, I'm always like, okay, really? I mean, what? What, what, is, what is that like? What, what happened there? Why, God, did you do that? And what did it look like? I, I don't know. And yet, God spoke to Jonah. God said to Jonah, Jonah, I've got something I want you to do. 
You see, that Jonah, there are these people in Nineveh. Jonah had heard of Nineveh, of course. There are these people in this, this great city, this important city, this powerful city, and they are absolutely wicked, Jonah. And I want you to go, and I want you to warn them that my judgment is coming. And some of us probably know what happens, right? Jonah does get up, get on a boat, and he heads in the direction of Tarshish. And depending on how well you know your ancient Mideast geography, that's the wrong way, okay? Here, here's a map. Um, so Jonah begins in Joppa, right? That's where he gets on the boat. He heads west to Tarshish. Well, where is Nineveh? It's smack dab in the middle of Assyria, modern-day Iraq. Um, Jonah, you're going the wrong way. I actually kind of love this about this story a little bit because, I mean, Jonah, he can't just tell God no, right? He, he's got to be so defiant to actually flee and run off in the opposite direction. And there he goes. Now, Nineveh, who are these people, right? It's not exactly, you know, a culture that we're probably particularly familiar with anymore. Uh, but for them... These Ninevites, okay, so there's historical records of the people of Assyria that they were a bloodthirsty people, a violent people, some of the most wicked people who've ever lived. I mean, they didn't just kill their enemies. They would literally skin them alive and then impale them on poles and use them as decorations throughout their city. They would invite, invent all kinds of cruel ways to torture the people they didn't like. They were a wicked people historically. There's lots of records of that. Not just that, though. The Assyrians were some of Israel's most terrible enemies. In fact, in just 30 or 40 years after Jonah, the entire nation of Assyria, Nineveh would become the capital of Assyria, would swoop down and destroy Israel. Just three or four decades later. Complete destruction. I mean, so are you following this, okay? The Ninevites are some of the most wicked people who've ever lived. They are the the enemy of God's people, and yet God says to Jonah, "Go, go warn them. Tell them if they don't change their ways, judgment is coming. We just gotta stop for a second and think about how gracious that was of God, right? To do that. And of course, Jonah... At that point, he says, oh, sure, God, yeah. I'd love to tell these people about your grace. And he runs in the opposite direction. It says twice in verse 3 and once in verse 10 that, that Jonah did this to flee the presence of the Lord, which is always a really brilliant plan, right? To, to try to hide from God, but off he goes anyway. Yeah, but, but come on. I mean, let's, let's be real about this. Jonah he knew who these Ninevites were, and what we just said, they're terrible people. I and mean, wasn't Jonah just afraid, right? He's just scared out of his wits, and who can blame him? I'm sure Jonah was afraid. That's not why he fled. Okay, so he's on this boat, right? Headed in the wrong direction. And God sends a storm to get Jonah's attention in itself is pretty gracious, right? God could have very easily just said, well, okay, I'll pick somebody else to go to Nineveh. But he sends a storm, which is pretty interesting as well, because even the wind and waves obey God, but not Jonah. And there Jonah rests 
down underneath in the belly of the ship in his cabin like this is just some cruise voyage, and he's sound asleep. And meanwhile, the, the sailors begin freaking out. Now, I'm not much of a sailor, okay? And so it probably wouldn't take much of a storm to scare me. But when the professionals start panicking, the people who do this for a living, when they start throwing their precious cargo overboard and start screaming out to all of their various gods for protection, that's the time to panic. But not Jonah. In fact, I see Jonah walking up to that deck, looking around, feeling the waves all around him, seeing the dark skies, the water spraying his face as the waves crash all around the boat. And I see him with a smug look on his face. You think you've won, God? You think you can frighten me into going to Nineveh? Because Jonah knew what was going on. I mean, he, he knew what was happening in this context, that God had brought the storm. Jonah knew that it was his fault, and so he begins to tell the sailors, you know, guys, I'm really sorry about this. It's totally my fault. Okay, mea culpa, okay? Can we just uh, move on here, right? Okay, uh, you know, here's what we'll do, okay? We'll, we'll take the boat north. We're headed west. Let's go north. You can drop me off at the nearest port towards Nineveh. And, you know, God will spare us. We'll put the storm behind us, and we can all move on with our lives. That's what you would think he would say. But not Jonah. I mean, essentially what Jonah is saying, he's, he has got his fist raised up to God. I would rather die than show your grace to those people. You think you've won. You think you can control me with a little bit of a storm, huh, God? Toss me in, boys. Splash what Jonah would only assume would be his imminent death, right? Nobody's thinking about a great fish at this moment. I mean, this is, this is attempted suicide, right? Jonah assumes that this is going to be the very end of his story and the end of God continually asking him to bring his grace to those people. And there he sinks. Instantly, the, the storm disappears. Again, the storm obeys God. I mean, even, even the, the sailors, the foreign pagan sailors, even they obey God. It says that they began worshiping Yahweh, the true God of Israel, there on the boat as the waters quieted and the, the serene passed, the, the, water, the, the boat could just sort of drift along. Everything and everyone in this story does exactly what God wants. Everything except Jonah. Even a big fish obeys God. Verse 17, here he comes. It says God sent him the fish. I mean, this is God's grace with gills on right up to Jonah to preserve Jonah's life. And the fish swallows him whole. And there he sits in time out for three days and three nights waiting. And I know, right, some of you are probably thinking, I mean, really? Of a fish. I know the Bible's hard to believe, but this is this is like gotta be one of the hardest stories, isn't it? It's just it's so beyond us to think about. And I and I get that. I'm not I'm not gonna prove it. I, I couldn't prove it if I wanted to. But let me, let me just say this: that if God is real, if God actually exists, and if God created the universe, that means he's in control of the natural order. And that he can occasionally do some really ridiculous things in order to prove a point. 
I mean, if God is real, anything is possible, just like with any other miracle. And besides, in the New Testament, in the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 12, Jesus talks about the story of Jonah as if it really happened. And if Jesus believed that it happened, I'm just going to go with him on this. So there's Jonah. Right? I mean, just picture it, right? There he is, in the dark, in the belly of this great fish. Once again, the recipient of God's grace. Jonah repents. In fact, chapter 2 is this sort of lengthy and eloquent prayer of Jonah telling God just how sorry he is. And I mean, most of it's really taken up of different quotes of various parts of the Bible. Not that there's necessarily anything wrong with that, but, you know, that's kind of what Jonah's doing. Essentially, he's, he's saying to God, hey, God, do you mind? I, I really don't want to die down here. And we can debate whether or not he's genuine about it, all right? I mean, I have no doubt, at least to some extent, he meant it. Who would want to die down there, slowly digested by a big fish, right? Of course, I mean, if anybody's going to pray, if anybody's going to repent, it's that person, okay? And God does graciously rescue him from the fish. But even the way God does it, more particularly the way that It's described here in his word. It's not exactly a glowing endorsement from God. Because as soon as Jonah finishes praying, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Vomit is never a good image. Okay? doesn't matter your culture, right? This isn't a compliment. Uh, Vomit is always disgusting. And many scholars actually believe that the way it's stated here, the the language that's used, it's to draw up this image that it's it's as if God has heard Jonah's prayer and God's response is bleh, as as the, the fish pukes him up onto the shore. I think that's kind of how God feels at this moment. And yet he's still gracious. Because God's not done with Jonah yet. So Jonah, you know, he's trying to clean himself up, I guess, after that. I'm not even sure what that would be like. God says to Jonah, how about now, Jonah? Will you go now, Jonah? And he does. He He actually does go, but it's really clear that he resents every minute of it. I mean, in chapter 3, verse 3, as the story continues, it says that Nineveh, it makes it very clear, the author wants us to know, Nineveh was a three-day city, okay? I mean, it took three days to get across, to, to thoroughly cover Nineveh. But the author says, well, Jonah went one day. And it's kind of like Jonah saying, you know, I'm going to go, all right, but don't expect me to do all of it, God. And then even his sermon. In verse 4, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. You kind of turn the page like your Bible's looking for the rest of the sermon. That's it. Some of you wish I preached short sermons like that. But, but basically, I mean, think about this. Okay, Think about what's going on in this, this story. I mean, he is walking through one-third of the city, basically shouting out, you're all going to hell soon. You know, he, he's got his, his God hates Nineveh sign, right, for everybody to see. A little sneer on his face. Resenting every minute of it. And they all repent. I mean, seriously, that's what it says. It's ridiculous. They hear that sermon 
And they turn away from their sins to the living God. Just like that. I mean, even the ruler of Nineveh himself, in verse 8, he issues this decree. He says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. What a ridiculous story, isn't it? Grace. Grace that God can use a prophet so lousy with a message so anemic going through only a third of the city to convict some of the nastiest people who ever lived to turn their lives to him. And like that, God spares them. Like that, he spares the people. Amazing grace. And I know some of you think at this point I've been way too hard on Jonah. It's because we often think that the story ends in chapter 3. You know, with Jonah as a successful prophet, he's the Old Testament version of Billy Graham, and everything's fine and dandy. We rarely make it to chapter 4. Let's call Act 1. Okay, that's chapters 1 through 3. Let's call that grace displayed. Act 2, chapter 4, this is grace despised. So the whole city of Nineveh repents. Jonah's got to be feeling pretty good, Right? I mean, just think about that, right? What, imagine sharing the gospel with one of the most influential, powerful cities in the entire known world and watching revival spread like wildfire. But Jonah has never been more miserable in his entire life. Never more unhappy, never angrier than he is in this moment. In fact, he prays once again to God here in verse 2, and I'm not sure there's an uglier prayer that's ever been recorded. Here's what he says. Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I left for Tarshish, for I knew it, God. I knew it. I knew that you were gracious. I knew that you were merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. God, you are so predictable. And here you are. I knew you'd do it. You'd forgive them. Of course you would. That's why I didn't want to go. Not because I was scared. Not because I was lazy. Because I hate those people. And God, I hate your grace. I hate it. I mean, why God didn't just like strike him dead at that moment, right? That's what he was asking for in the first place. It's like, fine, whatever, dude. Just... Yet God is so gracious. And the fact that we even carry on a conversation like this with Jonah. But God simply asks in return, Jonah, do you have any right to be angry? I mean, God remembers Jonah's prayer in the fish. Back when Jonah prays, terrified, you know, scared to death when he repented. He ended his prayer by saying, salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah, I remember what you prayed to me. What did you mean by that? Salvation belongs to me. What did that mean to you, Jonah? Salvation for you belongs to me? That then I have the right to decide and to choose? And Jonah just is silent at that moment. He, he gives God the cold shoulder and he walks off outside of the city just past what he must have assumed would be the blast radius 
of God's wrath poured out on this city. Goes out just far enough. Builds himself a little shelter, a a tent, or or something like that. I mean, facing the city, okay? You're you're following what's what's happening, right? He's waiting, hoping, hope upon hope that God's wrath is still coming. He sits there in his recliner. He's popped his popcorn, you know, burn, baby, burn. And he just keeps waiting, waiting, waiting. It's really hot this time of year in Nineveh. And so God has a plant grow up right there. Grows fairly quickly and provides some shade for Jonah. And Jonah's so happy. A little relief from the heat as he watches for the fire to come. But then God sends a worm, it says. The worm starts to eat the plant and the shade dies. And then just to make matters worth, it says that God sends a scorching wind from the east. God turns up the heat on Jonah. And while it might seem a little bit cruel, God is still trying to grab his attention. Still! Even now, he does this. And see again, everybody else in this story obeys God. Everyone but Jonah. Everyone. I mean, the waves, the wind, the sailors, the fish, the Ninevites, the plant, the worm, the heat, everything and everyone but Jonah. And if you thought Jonah was angry before, I mean, now he loses it. Now his precious shade is gone. And the longer he waits, the more he realizes that God's grace has won the day. God, I hate your grace. But God tries one more time. Jonah, do you, do you not see? I mean, Jonah, do you, do you see how angry you are? What right do you have? You are mad that I destroyed a plant. And you, yet you want me to destroy this entire city of people who are made in my image. Jonah, don't you see? Don't you get it? And that's where the story ends, right there. Like, really? That's, that's it? I mean, I just want, what happened? I mean, did, did Jonah repent or did God kill him? Did, Jonah, did he commit suicide? I mean, is Jonah going to be in heaven? I mean, all these questions. But that's where it ends. Good grief. What are we supposed to get out of that, Right? Let's go back right where we started. Jonah hates God's grace. But God cannot stop showing grace. And even though it might seem still just a little bit like a stretch, let me say it again. It's not just Jonah. We hate God's grace. But God cannot stop showing us grace. And I know we're still sort of wagging our fingers at at Jonah. I mean, what a terrible human being. But friends... The more I see Jonah, the more I see of myself. Because I see the self-righteousness, the the arrogance, the judgmentalism, the hatred. I see it in myself. And when I read the story, it terrifies me. And that's not not just some exaggeration, okay? This this week, looking at this story, I see way too much of myself in here. I, I know the anger that lives in this heart just below the surface. And I'm scared. 
that I'm going to end up like this guy, Jonah. It's like some bitter old man who, who refuses to trust anyone, who hates everything, loves no one, and who dies alone. So I want us to wrestle with three questions. I've been wrestling with these, these this week. Three questions to help us here. What are the symptoms first? What are the symptoms of grace haters? Why do we hate grace? And what do we do now? First, what are the symptoms of grace haters? I mean, for Jonah, it's pretty obvious. Um, It's clear he'd rather die than see Nineveh saved. I mean, he was convinced that in the belly of the fish that he deserved salvation uh, and is convinced that the Ninevites deserved destruction. And at first glance, I mean, I think, you probably think as well, it's like, well... I'm not going to do that. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous, right? This guy is, is rotten. I would never. And yet, well, let me ask a few diagnostic questions just to sort of poke at some of these symptoms that I think are so rampant in our lives. Let me, let me start at a, a personal level. I've got a lot of these questions, so uh, good luck. But first of all, ask yourself, do I take credit for the good things in my life? You know, you're, you, you work hard educated, you're smart. I mean, yeah, you thank God, but deep down, you just, you know that you've earned it. Does that describe you? Or, or really, the flip side of the same question is, ask yourself, do I resent God when bad things happen in my life? Because God owes me this pretty smooth existence, doesn't he? I mean, God owes it to me, right, that I have a decent marriage and, and a good family, that I have a little bit of ex- uh, disposable income and good health, a little shade, right? God owes me that, doesn't he? What do you think God owes you and why? Or ask yourself, why would God rescue me? I'm not a bad guy, Right? Hey, deep down, I live a decent enough life. I, I got my stuff, you know, mostly together. I'm at least not as bad as those people. And it's so easy to think, well, of course Jesus would die for my sins. They're pretty insignificant and wasn't that bad. He probably, it's probably just kind of fun almost, right? Do you see how much you hate grace? But those are the easy diagnostic questions, believe it or not. Because bring other people into the mix. And that's, that's where this conversation for myself really gets brutal. Who are the Ninevites in your life? I mean, ask yourself, who do I look at to feel better about myself? A sibling? A friend? Neighbor? Maybe it's a whole group, you know, those people. We all have them, right? To just sort of boost ourselves up a little bit. At least I'm not like that. Or ask yourself, who do I believe is beyond God's reach? You know, the folks that you've just sort of written off, right? I'm not going to bother sharing the gospel with them or inviting them to church or praying for them. I mean, they're just too far gone because God saving you was such an easy task, wasn't it? Really? Or even worse, ask yourself, who do I secretly wish bad things would happen to? Come on, you have those people, don't you? just like Jonah? Hey, your first thought is, no, of course not. I don't wish, I don't wish that. I'm not like Jonah. I'm not like that. The only difference, listen, the only difference between us and Jonah is that Jonah uses these dark theological categories for it. Of hellfire, right? Of, of God's wrath. And that's what Jonah longs for. And well, we wouldn't want that on somebody else. We just want like a few little, like tiny bad things, right? 
We just want them to be miserable in life or just to, to, to experience just a tiny bit of rejection. I mean, do, we, we don't even see how it's the same thing, even if it's in smaller ways. I mean, just, just for example, I mean, you, you know that feeling when that person cuts you off, right, in traffic? Um, and then, have you ever had this happen? Like, a minute later, you see them pulled over by a police officer. Is there a greater feeling in the world, right? <laughs> I mean, seriously. I mean, when I cut people off, which happens occasionally, I've got my reasons. I'm not a bad person. But when that person does it, oh, man, I want justice, right? I mean, even just this, this past week, Friday, okay, I was running errands with Kelly, and all this had already been written and studied and, and all of that, and somebody starts cutting me off, and I, you know, start yelling back in the car just for my own benefit. Kelly's sitting there, and as I get through my tirade, right, my righteous indignation for having my rights spat upon by this other person, I stop and I said to her, you know, this Sunday is going to be really painful. <laughs> it's going to hurt all of us, right? Because we, we do that. We feel that way. Or like, I mean, when you're late for something, right? When you're late, you're not a rude person, are you? You had, no. You had your reasons. When that coworker is late, It's like a personal attack, isn't it? How dare you make me wait? How dare you ruin my day? Because we've got it all so easily figured out. So who do you secretly wish harm? Think about that. Is it a different political party? Because your political party gets it all right, I'm sure. Is it a different race or religion? You know, people who are bent on destroying us? What about the gay community? How do you feel there? How do you respond there? What about those who are deeply hostile to the things that we think are important? Who'd rather, who would love to just destroy Christians? Do you pray that God would bless them? That God would care for them? That God would show his love and mercy and grace to them? Or do you secretly wish that he would just sort of curse them? Oh, I should probably move on. But one more set of diagnostic questions. Just in case anybody here still feels they're not guilty in the whole hating grace thing. One more. Ask yourself, who am I impatient towards? Who do I struggle to forgive? Where am I angry, proud, bitter, self-righteous, judgmental? Is it your marriage? For some of you, that's absolutely where it lives. What would a little grace look like in your marriage? Your family? Maybe it's a coworker or a friend or a classmate at school, some spot where you just can't stand. Because I, I mean, look, I deserve patience. I deserve people to forgive me for my wrongs because I'm just so righteous. I mean, don't you see how much we hate grace? I am so much like Jonah. I mean, it's pretty amazing, honestly, if you think about it, that God doesn't puke more of us up from time to time. Well, why? Why do we hate grace? Ultimately, I think we hate grace because it offends us. Grace, again, excuse me, is receiving something good that we don't deserve. And in that context, when you receive something good that you don't deserve, there's really just two options for us. We either refuse to believe that we don't deserve it, right? I kind of had that coming. Or we're so humiliated because we know that we didn't deserve it. But either way, we hate it. And you see, Jonah believed, he actually believed that he was worth saving as opposed to these other guys. I mean, an example of this would be like when you uh, get a Christmas gift from somebody that you didn't even think to put on your Christmas card list, right? I mean, what's the first thought that comes into your mind? 
I got to go get them something, right? And ultimately, that's because I don't want to be in their debt, right? I don't want them to have owed me anything or me to owe them anything in return. I want to have earned it. I want reciprocity in all of my relationships or even make it a little bit worse. What if that person, it's not just somebody you forgot to put on your Christmas card list, but it's, it's somebody that you just really don't like, right? And you've even maybe spread rumors about them and now you hold their gift in your hands. Be honest, you hate them all the more because of it. We hate it. Grace is offensive because by definition, grace means you're not good enough. If you were good enough, it wouldn't be called grace. We hate grace. I hate believing that I'm not good enough. Because you see, grace puts Jonah and Nineveh in the same category. Do you see that? It puts you and whatever person or people that you just can't stand. It puts us in the same category because grace says we are broken down sinners in desperate need of someone else to rescue us on our behalf, that we couldn't possibly be good enough. And who wants to believe that, really? I mean, honestly, this is one of the reasons that I believe that Christianity is is true, that it's the, the right path, because nobody in their right mind would center a religion upon something as despicable as grace. We wouldn't do it if you're going to make this up. Or you can't. Look at any other religion or, or way of living, right? Paganism, Hinduism, Buddhism, or even just secularism. If any of those other paths, it's always about me and what I can do, about how I can carve out my way or be good enough that I can earn it. And that, we humans who are self-righteous and self-centered, that we can get behind, right? That, that we can, okay, that's all right. I can, I can work my way. I can get it. I, we feel good about that. And then Christianity says that there's not a single thing that you could do to be good enough. But God loves you anyway. And we just don't know what to do with that, do we? So here's kind of the old crud moment. We hate grace. But grace is the one thing that can possibly save us. So what do we do now? I mean, I don't want to end up like Jonah. I mean, people, I, I know my heart, and what I see sometimes scares me. So let me just quickly mention three things. First, admit it. Admit how desperately broken you are. I mean, think about it. We're so sinful that we even hate grace, right? I mean, that, that, we are so sinful, we even hate the one thing that could possibly save us. Look deep into your heart. You are a mess. And so am I. I mean, I always remind myself this. I, I try to, and frankly, we, we remind ourselves together of this often, that, that I am so broken, so sinful, that in order to rescue me, just me even, the God of the universe had to become a man, enter this world, and die on an ugly, brutal cross just to rescue this guy. But that's, that's how broken we are. That's how messed up, how sinful. I mean, do you see? Admit, admit it. Admit your sins. Second, get over it. Get over yourself, Jonah. Humble yourself before this God of, who offers grace and beg for his mercy. You can't do that on your high horse. You can't do that from your superior position over others. Get over it and get on your knees. And finally, embrace it. Embrace it. Look at what this God offers us. I'm sure it offends every bit of self-righteous, I'm okay sensibilities within me. 
It offends everything about who I am. Get over it. You know what? Because without it, we're dead. I mean, so what are you going to do, right? Without it, there's nothing. There's no hope. Without it, we're just gone and dead. And really, even as we've told this story, we focus so much on Jonah here that it would be easy for us to walk away thinking Jonah was the main character of this story. Jonah's not the main character. God is always the main story, character of all the stories in this book. He's always the one that's on display. And just think about who God is, who he reveals himself to be in the story. He is the God who pursues the Ninevites, these wicked people who are God's enemies, Israel's enemies. He pursues them. And even Jonah, who rejects him over and over and over again, God continues to show him grace, to run after him, to chase him, to pursue him, to love him. So maybe, just maybe, there's a little bit of hope for me. Because at the end of the day, God wouldn't just send a prophet to this, especially a rotten prophet, to this city who actually did repent. God himself would come. And he would come to a people who would reject him, who would want nothing to do with him, who would despise him and ultimately crucify him. And yet he came. We are grace haters. Every one of us. God cannot stop showing us grace. And only then, only then can a grace hater like me learn to love grace. It's, it's only when you've embraced it, when you've tasted it for what it is, when you've been washed, knowing that you are fully accepted and loved by this God who really shouldn't even want anything to do with us in our rebellion against him. It's only when we see that can we actually say amazing grace How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me.